afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, invisible marijuana eggs. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Brian Green, who'll tell us about string theory. Also, we'll find out why our keyboards are that way. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Uh, kind of wet, actually. It is kind of rainy out there. Well, luckily I didn't bring my umbrella, but I was still blowing my face. You get rain that goes sideways. Oh, uh, yes. I do have a bit of sad news to start off this week. Oh, dear. What's up? One of our guests from last year has passed on. Well, we didn't have Johnny Carson no. on the program. It was Jeff Raskin, the, the guy fa- who started the uh, Macintosh project. He's gone, but the Mac lives on. So oh, yeah. His legacy is still in place. Right. It's too bad. It's only 61 years old. Well, on a long enough time scale, the survival rate for everybody goes to zero. <laughs> Indeed. Sad to hear, but science marches on, correct? Indeed. Okay. So does technology. Technology yeah. has been promising us a better tomorrow for many years now. Right. And in fact, I want to start off by sharing a revelation here. And it's actually going to be our quote of the week. And it's coming so early in the show this time. <laughs> yes. Well, because it's just so fantastic. It's coming from a Senator Tom Coburn, a Republican from Oklahoma. And he said a few weeks ago at a Senate Judiciary Committee, he said, And I thought I would just share with you what science says today about silicon breast implants. <laughs> if you have them, you're healthier than if you don't. That is what the ultimate science shows. In fact, there's no science that shows that silicon breast implants are detrimental. And in fact, they make you healthier. <laughs> Man, I'm getting them. <laughs> You're getting them? Because I'm coming down with a cold, and I think probably that's the best way of <laughs> alleviating it. Anyways, I just thought I'd share that with you. I, I'd always known, because some people, they just look a lot more jubilant with silicon <laughs> breast implants. Makes a little bit more bouncy, I guess. Yeah. Huh? Do you have to put them in your breast? Can you put them anywhere else? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Because, you know, my ass needs a little padding. Been rubbing it too much, huh? Yeah. That's interesting news, I guess, in case you have a silicon breast implant. <laughs> it's real science, you know. We always like to start out the program with things that are well-founded, especially when delivered by esteemed scientists like politicians. <laughs> So, um, here's actually some news here. Turns out the ozone layer had a dramatic decrease sometime in the spring last year, and they determined it was not due to man-induced effects, but actually from natural effects from the solar flares. So I think a few months earlier, late 2003, there was a blast of solar flares, and apparently that extra radiation had caused nitrogen oxide and nitrogen dioxide to form in the upper stratosphere, and those, of course, are one of the culprits that lead to the degradation of ozone. And so what they've determined is that, you know, when we look at the ozone concentration, we should not only consider man-made effects, but also uh, natural effects as well. The fact that humans are basically causing all the uh, changes to the global environment is probably unfounded. I mean, probably a big part of it is, in fact, natural effects, right? Right. Again, that's the issue, teasing apart the extent to which humans are responsible for changes in the global environment and that of natural causes. Right. And, of course, uh, again, it could be just due to breast implants and (laughs) (laughs) breaking down the nitrogen oxide. I don't know. Anyway, so this is just some current research that's being done on the atmosphere, and it's going to be published today, actually, March 2nd, in a Geophysical Research Letter. (laughs) 
Well, so uh, that was a pretty good quote you had <laughs> earlier there. Hey, the best stuff comes from politicians, uh, right? Easily, I think, except for laws. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually on the Washington Post, too, so. Can you uh, doubt a greater source than the Washington Post? <laughs> Aren't they, like, owned by uh, that Korean dude, Moonies or something? I believe they are. Okay, well, <laughs> maybe he's moving into that business. I don't know. Hmm. But has that quote ever made you wish you could have been a female? I thought I was a female trapped in a guy's body, but. Well, it's good that you're bringing that out on the uh, show. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a lesbian, so it makes me normal, I guess. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. But this may then interest you because... Because it turns out that female eggs can grow in male testes. Ooh, is this in humans or frogs? Well, in mice at least. Oh, in mice. So it turns out that if you uh, surround a group of female cells mm-hmm. that are going to become eggs right. with male cells that are going to become part of the testes, right. the male cells can basically influence what the female cells will become. Is it because they emit some hormone markers? Yeah, or various chemicals that they emit, right? Right. So normally what happens is that the female cells turn into male cells right. because of these hormones. Right. But it turns out that in some cases, the female Female cells will survive and produce female eggs in the male testes. Wow. So how did the experiments, did they just implant these male cells into the female? Yeah, they took the female cells and they just basically implanted it into the middle of the growing male testes in huh. embryonic mice. Right. And let the mice grow up. And right. they basically when they grew up, they had some male sperm forming and some female eggs forming as well. Wow. So this doesn't sound quite natural. I mean, what was the purpose of this uh, exercise anyways? <laughs> well, besides creating the uh, often wished for uh, male-female chimera, <laughs> it's also quite good actually for like, assessing what goes wrong in patients which have various chromosomal sex disorders oh. like Klinefelter syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, in which males carry an extra X chromosome. Right. So that could be useful in that sense. Right. But, uh, it's interesting you brought up because there's a researcher here, Tyrone Hayes, who's oh, yeah. known for doing physiological study of frogs in the uh, wild, and they've shown that certain pesticides are chemicals which resemble estrogen-like hormones, and they've seen male frogs, which also have female organs because of these chemical-induced changes. Right, right. So that was part of the study, was actually trying to figure out whether or not the genetics of the cells would basically play a bigger role than the hormones that are being released. Right. And so it turns out in some cases, yes, in some cases, no. Cool stuff, and if uh, anyone's interested in learning more about this, they can take a look in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, our favorite journal. And so appropriate for this one, too. PNAS. PNAS. Okay, speaking of rats... I was speaking of mice, but rats are good, too. So, is Mickey Mouse a rat or a mouse? Well, wouldn't he be a mouse? Yeah, I guess so, huh? <laughs> it's the name, right? <laughs> oh, names can deceive Maybe he's just Mickey. <laughs> Mickey rat. But there's an experiment with rats that shows that if they're treated with a combination of amyloid proteins, those are the things which are indicative of Alzheimer's, and also a cannabinoid, so compounds which are similar to the active ingredient marijuana, they actually do not show signs of cognitive decline. So what this suggests is that the main ingredient in marijuana or some analog of it could help to prevent a decline in Alzheimer's patients. Cool. Or maybe just the uh, rats are so high they don't notice that they're <laughs> cognitively declined. <laughs> Because I I know I'm high right now, and I I feel perfectly sane and lucid. (laughs) Wow, so you can find yourself out of this maze, huh? (laughs) The Matrix, I guess. It's the world that's been full of your eyes. Yeah. So this is interesting stuff. They think this could open a route to a route for uh, novel anti-Alzheimer's drugs using uh, cannabinoids. Okay. And this was work carried out at the Cajal Institute at the University of Madrid, and it's uh, actually in a recent edition of the journal Neuroscience. All right, and finally, have you ever wished that you were invisible? Well, you can't really see me, right? I can't really even hear you myself. Right? <laughs> Either you're a figment of my imagination or I'm a figment of yours. But which is which? I don't know. I'm not even sure if this is a show or not <laughs> at this point. Are we really here? How about the air we breathe? 
Um, okay, but anyway, so it turns out though that a group of researchers at the University of Pennsylvania have developed what they call a plasmonic cover that could uh, render objects nearly invisible to an observer. Hey, I saw that in a movie. The world's not enough. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they get all their good ideas from James Bond film. Right. So it's just like some sort of fiber optic cable link you put on your object. When you look at it, it looks like it's transparent. Yeah, so that's actually uh, one type of uh, camouflage that people have been trying to invent, which basically bends the light around right. an object to basically project the image from behind on the front. Yeah. But what they're actually suggesting is a completely different, basically to try and reduce the amount of light scattering on an object. So basically by doing that, if it doesn't reduce the amount of light scattering and also reduce the amount of absorbed light, they would effectively become invisible. That's interesting. Yeah, and so it's actually quite fascinating. But there's a caveat, is that the limitations on what you can, has to be limited to the size of the wavelength of the electromagnetic radiation that you're using. Oh, so like say, you know, between uh, three and 800 nanometers. Basically. So for, yeah, visible light, you could only make microscopic objects invisible. Huh. Longer how practical it is because you know even smog which scatters light that's on the order of microns that's still not enough to well they're saying it could be useful in certain types of microscopy that oh okay uh, I guess you can visualize things a little bit easier yeah if you can make certain things transparent you right. can look through some stuff right and if people are interested in learning more about making their microscopic particles invisible they can take a look in the recent edition of Nature News and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Brian Green from Columbia University will join us to discuss the elegant universe. So stay tuned. Back to you, Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KLX. Well, as we go about our daily lives, the world seems very real. Time, gravity, even three dimensions of space seem as obvious as the air we breathe. But as modern physics has progressed during the last century, the universe has slowly been revealed to be a more exotic place than most of us are capable of imagining. What is the nature of reality? We'll explore this issue today with our guest, Professor Brian Green. Professor Green is currently Professor of Physics and Mathematics at Columbia University. He holds degrees from both Harvard and Oxford and is one of the leading physicists developing mathematical descriptions of string theory, a theory unifying the four fundamental forces. He is the author of two popular books, The Fabric of the Cosmos and The Elegant Universe, which was made into an eponymous television series for NOVA on PBS. Besides all this, he has also been described on SuperStringTheory.com as String Theory's answer to John Cusack. And we're very pleased to welcome you today to Berkeley Grocks, Professor Green. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. And I'm sure many people are familiar with your books and, of course, the uh, television series. But for those who aren't, I wonder if you can give us maybe a description of the uh, types of problems that string theory is trying to solve and maybe why this is an elegant description of the universe. Well, for the last 30 years of his life, Albert Einstein was seeking what he called a unified theory of physics. And a unified theory would be one in which all physical phenomenon, at least in principle, could be described using the equations, the ideas in the theory. He never found the unified theory, and one of the main reasons is because his own 
theory of the large, things that are big and subject to gravity, his so-called general theory of relativity, turns out to be in conflict with another set of laws called quantum mechanics, and those are the laws that describe the small things, molecules and atoms and so forth. And for many years, nobody could find a way to put these two theories, the theories of the big and the theories of the small, into some harmonious union. That finally is what string theory has accomplished, giving us, in principle, one theory of the big, the small, and everything in between. Wow, how is it that uh, string theory is able to do this, where other theories have failed? Well, the key idea of string theory is to replace the old idea that the basic elementary constituents of matter are little dot particles mm -hmm. of effectively no size at all. Mm -hmm. We replace that idea with little tiny filaments of energy, little tiny loops of string, as we call it. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the passage from an ingredient of no size to an ingredient that has some size, albeit very small size, is the key step that allows us to go beyond the problems that all previous attempts at unifying quantum theory and general relativity faced. I see. So what are these strings? I mean, how can we uh, conceptualize them? Are they actually the matter itself, or is it space itself? Well, it's hard yeah. to answer that question. Yeah. I like to think about the strings as basically being filaments of energy, mm -hmm. and energy from Einstein's E equals mc squared is basically the most convertible currency in physics. Energy can manifest itself as matter, or it can manifest itself as radiation. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in a sense, when we talk about strings as being energy, they are at one and the same time matter, radiation, energy, and many of us think they may well be the fundamental ingredients in space and time as well. And one of the outcomes of the theories, of course, as you mentioned, for space and time is that this requires almost 10 or 11 dimensions of space-time. Yeah, it's a very strange implication of the theory. And indeed, for the first time, we do find that string theory unifies quantum mechanics and general relativity. But when we study that unification, there is a particular cost to that unification. And as you mentioned, the cost is we have to admit that the universe has more than three dimensions of space. Hmm. And that's a very strange idea. In fact, the theory requires, depending on the formulation, an additional six or seven mm. dimensions of space that nobody as yet has ever mm. seen. Right. So it's a very unfamiliar idea, but that's where this unification leads us. Where are these extra dimensions of space if they exist? Why can't we see them? And what's the? Yeah, how can we even think about it? It's a very good question. I, I've been working on that for basically 15 years mm -hmm. since I was a graduate student. And just to set up what the issue is, we all know about three dimensions of space. Mm -hmm. Those are left, right, back, forth, and up, down. The mm -hmm. three dimensions that we're all immersed within, we all move through those dimensions freely in everyday life. Literally, this... String theory is saying that in addition to those, there are others. So your question is, where is, where are they? We don't, we don't see them. And one suggestion that I've worked on for a long time, as well as other people as well, is that the extra dimensions may be tightly curled up. They may be very, very small. Mm -hmm. So they may be all around us, just too tiny for us to see with the naked eye, mm -hmm. and too small for us to see even with our most powerful magnifying equipment. Mm -hmm. That is one place that the extra dimensions may be hiding. I see. And that's one of the criticisms, of course, of string theory is that there's no real evidence as of yet of a any extra dimensions or such. And yeah, I, I would criticize string theory <laughs> in, in that way myself right. because none of us, myself included, will ever believe that string theory is correct until it does make contact with physical reality through some experimental prediction that experimenters go out and test. The, the very nice development in the last few years is that it's possible in the next five years using a new machine that's being built in Geneva, Switzerland. It's a big atom smasher, a big particle accelerator. Mm -hmm. And it may be the case that that particle accelerator will have the capacity to look for 
the extra dimensions. If mm. I can briefly describe how it would sure. do that. Basically, the accelerator will send particles going around a tunnel in opposite directions, very, very fast, near the speed of light, these particles will go. And every so often, the particles will be directed to slam into each other in a big collision. Now, the hope is that in that collision, some debris will be created that will be ejected mm. out of our dimensions and seep into the other dimensions. And how would we recognize that some stuff had been ejected? Well, we'll, we'll measure the energy after the collision, mm -hmm. compare it with the energy before the collision. Mm. If there's a little bit of energy deficit at the end, if there's less energy at the end than at the beginning, and if it is missing in just the right pattern, mm -hmm. that would give us indirect evidence that the energy had drifted off into the other dimensions, right. and that's why we don't see it. I see. But aren't there other theories that could also explain the loss of energy besides just the string theory? You can always come up with alternate right. explanations in physics. The explanations that you ultimately believe are the ones that not only are making contact with experimental observation, but also resolve a whole host of other theoretical issues that no other approach has been able to give insight into. So string theory unites general relativity, which is experimentally mm -hmm. confirmed. It unites it with quantum mechanics, which is also experimentally mm -hmm. confirmed. And if then a prediction of this unified framework is borne out by experiment, will it prove string theory? No, but it'll be pretty darn good right. circumstantial evidence that we're going in the right direction. And right. of course, then we'll try to come up with other predictions right. and every prediction that's confirmed is another reason why we believe the theory may be correct and that's basically how science progresses and that's the track that will follow. Is the allure of string theories that is just so elegant in terms of collapsing all these theories into one nice unified theory? It's certainly part of it. Yeah. it. It is quite impressive the way so many developments in physics over the last 50 years, mm -hmm. developments that have to do with the structure of the nucleus, the nuclear forces, developments that have to do with the basic structure of matter, all of the previous developments that occurred before string theory, the ones that have survived experimental testing, all naturally fit within string theory. Mm -hmm. So here's this theory that comes along, doesn't only embrace general relativity and quantum mechanics, but pretty much embraces all of the successful discoveries in the last 50 years, and that wow. is very elegant. How did you become interested in this particular field itself? I mean, of all the fields in physics, really. S string theory yeah. itself? Well, I was a graduate student at Oxford in the mid-1980s, uh -huh. and 1984 was a big year for string theory. Almost nobody was working on string theory in 1983. Uh -huh. But in 1984, two physicists, John Schwartz at Caltech, Michael Green from London, had a breakthrough. Hmm. When they made that breakthrough, showing that the math of string theory worked, even though previously it was unclear that it actually would, that really took the physics world by storm. Mm -hmm. And everybody who was a high-energy theorist took note, and many mm -hmm. dropped the work that they had been pursuing and started to work on string theory. So as a beginning graduate student, it was a natural thing to jump in on the ground floor mm -hmm. because it was one of the rare moments in the history of physics where the older physicists weren't really at a great advantage right. because they hadn't been thinking about string theory. So we right. all kind of jumped in together, and it was a very productive time. Have you uh, looked back on it and thought about other fields that you might have gone into? Well, when I went to Oxford, I was thinking that I would work on gravity. Uh -huh. Gravity was always mysterious to me, and I always wanted to study it. Although I thought I might study it in more prosaic context, uh -huh. if you will. The structures of galaxies, the structures of black holes, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. And I did start to work on that, but then when the foundation of the theory describing gravity was up for grabs and there was a potential of making progress, that was really a very strong allure. Right. 
One of the interesting uh, things I guess you mentioned in one of your books is that your interest in physics also draws some uh, motivation, inspiration from how it sort of applies to our daily lives. How can physics talk about how we live our lives, really? Well, the physics that we're developing yeah. certainly doesn't directly talk about how we live our daily lives because the environments in which the physics that we're developing really is relevant is very far from human experience. Mm -hmm. The environments are those that are extremely massive, like black holes or the entire universe, or environments that are extremely small, like particles and subatomic mm -hmm. structures inside of particles. So you might think that will have no bearing on everyday life. And my feeling is that, yes, it doesn't have any bearing directly on everyday life. It doesn't give you some new piece of technology that makes life easier. But when you understand the laws of physics better, when you can look at, say, a flower or teacup or anything uh -huh. and understand its structure more deeply, I feel that you have a very enriched way of living your life, and it helps you understand your own place in the universe when you understand the laws that gave rise to the universe and allowed it to evolve into the form that we currently witness. So, yes, it doesn't help us in any concrete, direct way, but it does change the way we think about the universe, and that affects how we live. Mm. Some people might, might not see science in this way, and sort of more cerebral and not really affecting, I guess, how we deal with each other emotionally. It's hard to say. Mm -hmm. In a very indirect way, you can imagine that if you have a cosmic sense of the universe, issues of everyday life mm -hmm. may be important to you, but they may not eat at your soul mm -hmm. in the same way that they would if you didn't have the cosmic view of the universe. But even in more concrete ways, if you were to have asked those who developed quantum mechanics in the early part of the 20th century, will this affect our lives? I think most of them would have said no, because they were dealing with the structure of atoms, and that, again, seems very far removed mm -hmm. from everyday life. But today, 70 or 80 years later, those developments in quantum physics have given rise to the cell phone, the personal computer, lasers, medical technology. There's so much in the world around us that actually owes its existence to the discovery of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. So perhaps, I don't know, 100 years or 500 years, it's hard to predict, the work that we're doing today may have a more direct impact on everyday life. It's mm. possible. Mm. You're in one of those fields of science which is really, I guess, at the, the cutting edge, really, of scientific fields. But a lot of areas of science, many people have claimed it's sort of gone beyond figuring out what the fundamental laws are and really is more sort of technical in nature now. Do you think there are any frontiers of science, really, where we really need to understand fundamentally what's going on? If you want to ask the big questions like, how did the universe begin? That's a field of physics called cosmology. Mm -hmm. Then you need to understand the fundamental laws. Mm -hmm. We have attempted to understand how the universe began by using the known laws of physics, but as any cosmologist will tell you, those laws break down if you try to apply them in the extreme environment that we believe existed near the origin of the universe. So if you want to ever answer that question, you have to have a theory like string theory, which, right. if it's correct, is a theory that doesn't break down under any circumstances. Similarly, if you really want to understand what happens deep inside a black hole, you know, stars, when they end their lives as nuclear furnaces, collapse under their own weight, giving rise in certain circumstances to very dense regions of space that we call black holes. Nobody's been able to figure out what happens deep inside a black hole right at its so-called center. If you have a theory that can have laws that don't break down under extreme context like the center of a black hole, you stand a chance of finally understanding these objects. And we believe these objects exist. There's observational evidence that they're really out there. So we'd really like to understand them. So extreme astrophysics, cosmology, these are the kinds of fields where string theory, if it's right, again, mm -hmm. will have a significant impact. 
I see. Well, it's all very fascinating stuff, and unfortunately, it does look like we are slightly out of time, but Professor Green, I just want to thank you very much for a very fascinating discussion. And oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Brian Green from Columbia University discussing the elegant universe and unifying the laws of physics. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. from the break and we're here with Professor Brian Green who has graciously decided to stick around and play our game the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is of course our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue and he has chosen the topic today of how many dimensions are needed to describe. So for the following five items the Grokatron 5000 would like to know how many dimensions are needed to describe the following five items. Are you ready to play our game the Grokatron 5000? Sure why not. Alright here we go. The Grokatron 5000 item number one how many dimensions to describe fast food supersized meals? Oh, I'd say one, just a dimension of unhealthiness. That's the only dimension that matters. All right, number two, Homer Simpson. Well, I would say two dimensions. One for uh, how he treats his family, young Bart and the rest of them, and I think that's a, a good the family dimension. And then also how he does at work, trying to uh, save us all from nuclear disaster. So I would always want to judge Homer on those two particular scales. And how does he rate on the two? Uh, well, he seems to be doing okay. That show's been around now, what is it, like 10, 15 years, and there hasn't been anything too disastrous. And no explosions yet. <laughs> all right, uh, number three, Michael Jackson. Jackson. Ooh, that's a complex one. Michael Jackson has so many facets to him that I would be reluctant to limit the number of dimensions. So I would say that you should start with a large number of dimensions, maybe a hundred, but allow yourself to increase the number of dimensions as <laughs> new features and aspects of his character come to light. I don't think they can all be comprehended uh, at once. Really. Well, we certainly haven't been able to do it with string theory yet, but who knows, maybe that's just a calculational impasse. Uh, number four, the iPod. The iPod, you know, I, I see these iPods, but I've never used one, I've never played with one, so 
I know that they're supposed to store a lot of music, but beyond that, I don't know anything about them. And uh, number five, what I'm sure we're all interested in, how many dimensions needed to describe the President of the United States, George Bush? I think zero <laughs> dimensions. There, There isn't really much one can say, and anything that you do say, I think, is probably fleshing out the character more than you'd want to, so I'll just leave it at zero dimensions. I was expecting negative dimensions, but at least uh, we have <laughs> we have null. <laughs> all right, Professor Green, I want to thank you very much again for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grox, playing our game of the Grox. 5000, of course, uh, discussing all the fascinating things in superstring theory. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. And Yoda here with the answer to last week's question of the week. <clears throat> the Force moves many things, but not so easy with typewriters. <clears throat> so they made typewriters harder to type, a little bit slower, so the keys don't get stuck. And that's why keyboards are this way. <clears throat> Yeah, thank you very much there, Yoda. That was very great and very intriguing. But you know, every time I listen to the things about keyboards, I get so hungry, yeah? The things that makes me get so great ideas is chocolate, yeah? The chocolate is very good. But you know, sometimes I melt the chocolate, it doesn't taste so good. Why is that? Well, if you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might meet the Swiss Miss. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. <laughs>